welcome to Can I Butt In, the Bowel Research UK podcast, where we welcome bowel cancer and bowel disease patients, researchers, healthcare professionals and carers to butt in and share their experiences. We're picking a topic every episode and getting to the bottom of it. I'm your host, Sam Alexandra-Rose. I'm the Patient and Public Involvement Manager at Bowel Research UK. And as a patient myself, I'm excited to bring more patient and researcher voices into the spotlight. Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of Can I Butt In? We're doing things a little bit differently today. I'm sat here by myself to do an episode on Rare Disease Day. So Rare Disease Day is on the 29th of February this year, 2024, um, which I think is great planning by whoever decided that they would have Rare Disease Day on the most rare day that you can find. Bravo for that. Um, Obviously, normally on the 28th of Feb. And I thought that today, for Rare Disease Day, we would do an episode on rare or lesser talked about bowel conditions and diseases. So I'm going to talk you through some of these. And of course, this episode itself is quite rare because uh, you have me uh, all to yourself uh, with no nobody here to keep me in check. So yes, that's another rare part of it. So let's jump in. And I'm going to start by just explaining what is a rare condition, first of all. So A rare condition affects less than one in 2,000 people within the general population. So if it affects less than one in 2,000 people, then it's considered to be a rare condition. You can also have ultra rare conditions, and that's when something affects one in 50,000 people. So for our purposes today, we're going to be looking at these conditions and also just lesser known discussed or researched bowel conditions. So some of the things that we might talk about today might not necessarily be rare as such, but it might be rare that somebody is shedding some light on them. And how rare are rare diseases themselves? I always find interesting. Yes, individual rare diseases themselves by definition are rare. But I saw this on the government website. It says there are between 5,000 and 8,000 rare diseases. It's quite a lot, isn't it? It says each one affects less than 0.1% of the UK's population, but together they affect the lives of 3 million people. And then raredisease.org.uk says that one in 17 people will be affected by a rare disease at some point in their lives. So while these individual conditions might be rare, it's actually not that rare to have a rare condition of some kind. So it's definitely important that we talk about rare diseases and how people are going to be affected by them. So I'm going to tell you about some lesser known bowel conditions, their causes and treatments and where you can read patient stories about some experiences of these conditions. We're going to have a look at SIPO, 
or chronic intestinal pseudo-obstruction, mesenteric plexitis, Hirschsprung's disease, metastatic small bowel obstruction, paediatric IBD, and enterocutaneous fistula or ECF. And apologies in advance if I butcher any of these uh, pronunciations, as I believe I have done already. I'm, I'm sat here as a layperson, just as you may well be. And I've definitely learned some things from putting this episode together. So I hope that you do as well and, and that you find it interesting. So we're going to start with SIPO, which stands for Chronic Intestinal Pseudo-Obstruction. And we'll break down the name of this condition in just a minute. But we'll start with what is SIPO or SIPO, depending on how you'd like to pronounce it. And SIPO happens when the nerves and all the muscles in the gut don't work properly, which makes it difficult or even impossible to move food, fluids and air through the digestive system. So I can imagine already that this is a really difficult thing to deal with if you're eating and, and digesting things, but your nerves or your muscles aren't moving the food and the, the fluid through your system as they should sounds like a difficult condition to deal with and it usually affects the small and large bowel uh, but some people do also experience difficulties with the esophagus and the stomach so to break down that name then chronic intestinal pseudo obstruction chronic means that something persists for a long time or is constantly recurring. Intestinal is, of course, to do with the bowels. And then this pseudo-obstruction. It's called a pseudo-obstruction because the symptoms are similar to having a blockage in some part of the digestive system, but actually there's nothing physically there. So it, it feels like an obstruction and... It's similar to that, but there's not actually a physical blockage, hence chronic intestinal pseudo-obstruction. And then you also have PIPO, P-I-P-O, which is pseudo-obstruction uh, that occurs in children. So that's paediatric intestinal pseudo-obstruction, PIPO. And Bow Research UK is actually partnering with the Pseudo Obstruction Research Trust or Port Charity to help fund research into the condition. Symptoms of SIPO are similar to other bowel conditions um, like bowel cancer, IBD, IBS. So things like abdominal pain, nausea, lots of vomiting, constipation, of course. Uh, diarrhea, bladder problems, and sometimes trouble swallowing as well. And it's a common theme with some of these bowel conditions that if there's an obstruction, it's natural for there to be a symptom of constipation. That makes sense, you know, not being able to, to pass uh, your poo. But then there's also this presence of diarrhea potentially or leakage. And I guess it depends if it's if it's lots of diarrhea or, or if it's just leakage depends on on the person and the, the condition. But it is surprising, perhaps, that diarrhea might be present with a blockage 
or a similar condition because you would think that constipation would be the only symptom but actually fecal matter can go around the blockage in some cases but you might not not be able to control it so you get this kind of leakage around the obstruction which means that you you then have this presence of of diarrhea as a symptom uh as well or or leakage or uh incontinence potentially so that's that's interesting and yeah it's something that that kind of comes up with a few of these these things that the constipation and diarrhea are both potential symptoms so diagnosis of sipo then SIPO is quite complex and there isn't a single definitive test that you can do that will diagnose it. So you can use a few different tests. So one test that can be used is called small bowel manometry, where a tube is passed through the nose and down the throat and into the stomach and then into the small bowel. And then there's sensors there in the tube uh, that can measure the contractions of the bowel wall. And then you can also do a full thickness biopsy under general anaesthetic, which is where a small piece of the full thickness of the bowel is removed and then it can be analysed. And then there's other tests as well that are usually uh, used to rule out other conditions. So by process of elimination, you can say, well, we've tested for this and that's not what it is. We've tested for the other and that's not what it is. And then treatments of SIPO, well, depending on the individual and their experience of the condition, really. Um, so you can treat the symptoms. So we've talked about uh, constipation and, and diarrhea and feeling sick. Uh, depending on which of these symptoms are being experienced, then you can treat those symptoms. And then potentially also do some changes to diet and medication that helps speed up the passage of food uh, through the gut to try to alleviate the symptoms. Bio Research UK is funding research into SIPO and the use of MRI to diagnose SIPO. So if you would like to find out more about that, you can visit bioresearchuk.org and have a look at the research section of our website and you can read all about that. In terms of how rare SIPO is, it's difficult to tell uh, due to the lack of a standardised definition. So it may not be that everybody agrees on a definition of SIPO. It can also be underdiagnosed and there's also variation in research focus. So some people who are researching might focus on SIPO in adults. Some may be looking at PIPO, the paediatric version. But studies suggest that there's nine people per million uh, in adults in Japan uh, that have SIPO. So yeah, not many at all and uh, slightly more common in males, the same study found. So you can also have a look on our website to see Lisa's SIPO story. So Lisa has SIPO and mesenteric plexitis and she brought these to my attention and very kindly provided her patient story, which she wrote up his and is on our website so definitely have a look at that and I'll tell you a little bit about mesenteric plexitus um, but I won't say anything else about Lisa's sort of individual story because I definitely prefer people to be able to tell their stories in their own words but definitely have a look at the website to find out more. So mesenteric plexitus or plexitis is an inflammation of the mesenteric plexuses 
which I didn't know that we had. So the mesenteric plexuses are complex networks of nerves located in the abdomen, and they control the involuntary functions of the various digestive organs. So things like muscle movement, blood flow. And we have two mesenteric plexuses. So we have our superior mesenteric plexus, which is located near the origin of the superior mesenteric artery behind the pancreas. And this supplies nerves to the small intestine, the duodenum, pancreas, appendix, ascending colon, hepatic flexure, and proximal and mid-transverse colon. And then we have our inferior mesenteric plexus, and that's in front of the sacrum. And that supplies nerves to the descending colon, the sigmoid colon, rectum, and upper part of the anal canal. Mesenteric plexitus is also called panenteric visceral neuropathy. So it's all to do with uh, the nerves that are involved in the different digestive organs. So you can see that it does have, it's, it's kind of a, a similar area to SIPO, which is also involves the, the nerves and the muscles with uh, moving food through the digestive system. We don't know the cause of mesenteric plexitus, but it could possibly be triggered by viral or bacterial infections, radiation therapy, certain medications, connective tissue diseases, or abdominal surgery. And the symptoms are, again, similar to other conditions, which makes it difficult to diagnose. But it might include abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, constipation, bloating, weight loss and fever. Diagnosis can be done by blood tests, x-rays and CT scans, endoscopies and the biopsy as well of the mesenteric plexus. There isn't a cure but medication can help to relieve symptoms and surgery can remove the affected part of the plexus. In terms of how rare this is, one study suggests that 0.6% of the general population have this. Uh, again, that's a study in Japan found 1.1 per 100,000 people. And again, it's difficult to say exactly how rare it is because it is hard to diagnose and different studies define and report on the condition differently. As I say, you can find out more about SIPO and mesenteric plexitus on our website. You can go to the About Bowel section, you can go to the Individual Story section and read Lisa's story and also read about uh, the research into MRIs uh, for SIPO in our research section. Moving on then to enterocutaneous fistula or ECF, which I will now be saying for ease. This is an abnormal connection that forms between your intestinal tract, so your small bowel or your large bowel, and the skin. So a fistula is kind of a, a connection that forms where it, it shouldn't be forming, basically. And this, this particular one, or this particular type of fistula, forms between the small or loud, large bowel and the skin. And that means that intestinal contents can leak through an opening onto the skin, which, I mean, sounds really painful and irritating to me. Um, just puts me in mind of when I had a, a stoma and when I was changing my bag and it would, like the, the poo would leak if my stoma was being particularly naughty and decided to have a movement during 
uh, the time in the morning when I was changing the the bag and the flange and everything. And it, sometimes uh, it would uh, the poo would get onto my skin, and that was really painful because I guess it's it's acidic. And yeah, not not pleasant, not pleasant at all. So yeah, to have that on your skin through a fistula, yeah, sounds pretty painful to me. Um, so that is listed as as one of the symptoms. Uh, is is the pain and irritation of this intestinal content leaking onto the skin. Also potentially dehydration due to fluid loss. Uh, diarrhea uh, if the fistula leaks significant liquid and malnutrition uh, because nutrients aren't being absorbed properly. So this is an uncommon condition, but it's not extremely rare. It is rare to hear about it, which can make it difficult to find support and understanding and um, and yeah, to, uh, to research and to find research on it as well. Diagnosis of ECF is a physical examination uh, to see where the fistula is. And then you can do imaging tests, so x-rays, CT scans, and also something called fistulography which is injecting dye so that you can visualise the, the fistula, the tract. Treatments then depend on the severity and the cause. So some fistulas might heal on their own uh, if you have care like nutrition and wound management. Uh, if it's a persistent fistula, you might need surgical closure. It's caused uh, most commonly after bowel surgery, uh, but it can also be caused by infections, by perforated ulcers, inflammatory bowel diseases, so Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, and also abdominal injuries. We have a patient story for this as well. So Lorraine had ECF and she brought this uh, condition to my attention. And she wrote her story as well and you can find that on the individual stories section of our website bowresearchuk.org so definitely go have a look for Lorraine's ECF story there. The next thing that I wanted to talk about is Hirschsprung's disease which is proving to be a bit of a tongue twister for me. I don't know if you've noticed. I'll say I'll try not to say it too many times because I I've I failed twice now I think. Hirschsprung's disease. So this is also known as congenital aganglionic megacolon and it's a birth defect that affects the large intestine. And this involves the absence of nerve cells. There's there's a lot going back to nerve cells, isn't there? There's there's a pattern here for sh there's a, a common theme. So this is the absence of nerve cells or ganglions cells in a part of the colon, and this can again provide problems with moving stool or poo through the uh, intestines. So this can cause uh, a lot of constipation. So normally the colon or the intestine has ganglion cells that control muscle movement and that helps to, to push the poo along. In Hirschsprung's disease, some or all of the cells are missing in a section of the colon. So this is usually the rectum and the lower sigmoid colon. So without these nerves and these nerve signals, the affected part of the colon where these uh, nerve cells are missing can't contract effectively and can't push the stool along effectively. So that causes the stool to build up and 
uh, create a blockage in the bowels. So symptoms, uh, again, constipation, and also as it affects babies in the majority, so babies not having their first bowel movement in the first 48 hours of life uh, is a symptom. Also abdominal pain and bloating, vomiting, uh, diarrhea, again, due to the stool leaking around the blockage and passing small or watery stools. Also loss of appetite and delayed growth and distension, which is similar to, to bloating, but distension is the measurable increase in the size of the abdomen. So you can physically see and and measure the, the bloating or the distension. It's a uh, a visual uh, thing that that you can you can see. Diagnosis can be through rectal biopsy, so taking a small tissue sample from the rectum to check for missing cells. X-rays can also look for trapped air or stool in the colon, and a barium enema can use a special contrast liquid to see the colon and see the blockage in there to diagnose uh, Hirschsprung's disease. Treatment, uh, so this always requires surgery to remove the affected part of the colon and create a connection between the rest of the, the healthy colon that remains and the rectum. And then sometimes people will have a, a colostomy or stoma before uh, having this uh, definitive surgery as well. So this can be inherited, but mostly occurs spontaneously and it's been found to affect one in 5,000 babies. I'd also like to talk today about small bowel obstruction. As the name suggests, it's an obstruction in the small bowel uh, and prevents food and digestive juices from passing through normally. There's lots of different causes for a small bowel obstruction. And a small bowel obstruction, because there's lots of different causes, isn't particularly rare. Um, but different causes are adhesions, uh, which is the scar tissue that can come after abdominal surgery uh, and that can trap loops of uh, the colon and cause an obstruction. So you have adhesions, uh, you have hernias, so that's a kind of protrusion, a kind of bulge of an intestinal loop through a weaker spot in the abdominal wall and that can cause a blockage. Tumours, so growing within or outside of the bowel, uh, compress on the bowel and cause a blockage. Another big word that's uh, I've clearly challenged myself with uh, with the topic of this episode. So intersusception, and that's one part of the small intestine telescoping into another. So if you imagine a collapsible telescope where one part kind of fits into the other, uh, imagine if that was kind of stuck halfway. So that's intersusception when a part of the, the small intestine is kind of collapsing into another part. You also have volvulus, which is the twisting of a, a loop of the colon, which can cause a blockage. And gallstones. Large gallstones can sometimes uh, migrate into the small intestine and cause a blockage there. And then finally, you have foreign objects. So if somebody swallowed something uh, inedible that they shouldn't have swallowed, something that isn't food, something that's an object, and that can get stuck in the small intestine as well. So there's lots of different ways to have a small bowel obstruction. The symptoms of a small bowel obstruction are severe abdominal pain or cramping, uh, nausea and vomiting, 
bloating and distension, constipation or inability to pass gas, loss of appetite, dehydration, and in severe cases or in children, uh, also fever can be present. Diagnosis is a physical exam, taking medical history of the person, or having blood tests, having imaging tests like x-rays, CT scans, ultrasounds. In some cases, you can have a barium enema. And then uh, treatment will depend on the severity and the cause of the obstruction. So some mild cases might actually resolve on their own if you have something like uh, IV fluids or pain medication, it can resolve itself and pass. But then more severe cases can require surgery to remove the blockage or repair whatever the underlying cause is that's uh, causing the blockage to occur. So why are we talking about small bowel obstruction then if it's not particularly uncommon? Um, well, what is less common is tumours in the small bowel and also metastatic small bowel cancer. So uh, cancer that has spread to the small bowel and estimates suggest that this occurs in roughly 0.2% to 1.5% of all cancer patients so just another thing to kind of add to our inventory if you like of rare bowel conditions and bowel diseases is small bowel cancer and metastatic small bowel cancer which can lead to uh, small bowel obstruction. Moving on then to CMMRD or constitutional mismatch repair deficiency, which is something that I have myself. And it's not just related to the bowels, it is broader than that. Uh, it affects one in a million people. So it is an ultra rare condition. It's a genetic condition that is inherited through families. And it's to do with your uh, genes and it basically increases your risk of getting different types of cancer. To explain CMMRD or constitutional mismatch repair deficiency further, uh, we should talk about Lynch syndrome. So Lynch syndrome is not rare, but lots of people who have it, in fact, about 95% of people who have it don't know that they have it. So Lynch syndrome is a genetic condition that increases people's risk of, well, a few different types of cancer but particularly bowel cancer it can increase the risk to up to 80 percent it can also affect uh, other other types of cancer as, as well so gynecological cancers and some others it depends which gene is involved but essentially with lynch syndrome we all have genes that help to repair problems in cells so if something starts to go wrong with a cell when it's multiplying then we have genes that can correct these problems and then that can prevent cancer from recurring if somebody has lynch syndrome then they have kind of deficiency in these repair genes these mismatch repair genes so it means that we don't have that defense so much uh, against cancer developing so essentially our uh, internal editors if you if you like who correct all of the uh, the mistakes that are made in cells are not working uh, they're broken they're they're asleep at the desk they're not working so that can increase a person's risk of getting different types of cancer so that's lynch syndrome and again it's inherited through families 
everybody has two copies of the the gene, uh, the affected gene. So uh, let me see if I can rattle off the uh, affected genes. I know that mine is PMS2. And then you also have MLH1, MSH2, MSH6, and more rarely, I believe, is EPCAM, and also PMS2, which is mine. So if you have Lynch syndrome, then you'll know which of your genes are affected, most likely. Uh, if you don't have Lynch syndrome, then what I've just said probably doesn't mean very much. But uh, whatever of those genes uh, is, are affected, uh, we each have two copies of the gene. And in Lynch syndrome, if you have Lynch syndrome, one of those genes will be, it'll have a mutation. So if a person has Lynch syndrome and they have a copy of the gene that's working fine and they'll have one that has a mutation, isn't working properly. And then if they have children, then that child will either inherit their good gene or their bad gene. So you put both parents together, the child will say, generally, you're, you might have one person who has Lynch syndrome and then their partner who doesn't have Lynch syndrome. So the child will inherit a good gene from the parent who doesn't have Lynch syndrome, because that's the only kind of option available. And they will either inherit the good gene or the, the bad gene, the mutated gene, from the person who has the parent who has Lynch syndrome. That means they have a 25% chance of getting Lynch syndrome themselves. So that's Lynch syndrome. Uh, what I did is I went the extra mile and developed, well, I had CMMRD. And that's what happens when both of your genes are broken because you've inherited Lynch syndrome from both of your parents. So it turned out that both of my parents had Lynch syndrome and I inherited a both of their broken genes, essentially. So I could have done what my sister did, which is inherited mum's good gene and dad's good gene. Or I could have inherited a good gene and a bad gene, a good gene from mum and a bad gene from dad or vice versa. But what I actually did is inherited both of their, their bad genes, which again, very rare. One in a million people have CMMRD and it just further increases your risk for various types of cancer and is different types of, of cancer to, to Lynch syndrome as well. But I have been affected by bowel ones. So I had bowel cancer when I was 22 and then duodenal cancer and also womb cancer uh, when I was 30. So most people who have CMMRD develop cancer in childhood. So mostly before the age of 18. And unfortunately, you know, that means that a lot of people don't make it to adulthood. Um, so definitely doing doing well by all accounts uh, at the moment. So Lynch syndrome and CMMRD are diagnosed through genetic testing. So you would go to see a genetic counsellor who would sort of get family history and tell you all about kind of the the possibilities. That's what happened with, with me. Me and my parents went to the counsellor. We talked about all the possibilities of, of what could be going on. Um, I was sent there because I'd had bowel cancer at such a young age and they wanted to find out why. I think they always suspected Lynch syndrome. Um, and then we had blood tests and found that my parents have Lynch, Lynch syndrome and I have CMMID. And that's how it was diagnosed. In terms of treatment, you don't treat Lynch syndrome or CMMID as such. Uh, what you, you do is you have routine testing 
you go for screening and uh you know you hope for early detection of any problems that have arisen and that's that's the main thing really that's what you do you go to to get your your screening on a regular basis uh, make sure that you're being uh, sort of looked after by by your your consultant by your your hospital you'll get in the the screening that you need and then hopefully nip anything in the bud as quickly as possible um there's more information about lynch syndrome and cmmrd on the bow research uk website i've blogged about it before we have an information page about it as well So moving on then to paediatric IBD. IBD or inflammatory bowel disease itself is common. So around 300,000 people in the UK are living with IBD. When we talk about IBD, we're talking about Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. But IBD is not common in children. And when it's present in children, it can impact their growth and development. It can cause delays in puberty and potentially lead to nutritional deficiencies uh, and growth issues, particularly with Crohn's disease. And as with many illnesses, it can have a psychological impact as well. So diagnosis of paediatric IBD is blood tests, stool tests and endoscopies. Uh, The treatment is the same treatment as uh, you would give to adults is also effective in children and this focuses on controlling the inflammation and preventing flares and it can include medication and dietary changes and sometimes surgery as well and what treatment specifically will depend on whether it's uh, Crohn's or colitis that we're talking about. Paediatric IBD is more common than you might think but it's still a rare chronic disease in children and it affects one in 250 children worldwide or 0.4% of the paediatric population. It accounts for 20 to 30 percent of all IBD cases. Crohn's disease is slightly more common in paediatric IBD compared to ulcerative colitis and it affects roughly twice as many children. I'm going to go through just a few more and I don't have quite as much on on the rest of these. So just briefly to talk about some other rare and lesser talked about bowel conditions. So we have inflammatory and uh, immune disorders uh, such as microscopic colitis. So this is a colitis that can appear normal uh, in a colonoscopy potentially. So this is Microscopic colitis, the abnormal reaction of the immune system, uh, which causes chronic inflammation of the inner lining of the colon, um, despite appearing normal in colonoscopy, which makes it uh, that little bit rarer uh, than colitis. So that's microscopic colitis. And then there's a few vascular and structural abnormalities as well. So superior mesenteric artery syndrome, or SMAS, And that's the compression of part of the duodenum by the superior mesenteric artery. So here, part of the the duodenum, which is part of the small bowel, uh, is being compressed by the superior mesenteric artery. And that can cause nausea, vomiting and bloating. You also have bowel ischemia, and that's the lack of blood flow to the intestines. So when you don't have that blood flow to the intestines, that can lead to tissue damage and it can also be very painful. And this can make it difficult for the intestines to work properly. 
And then more words that are testing my pronunciation. We have intestinal lymphangiectasia. I may well have edited that <laughs> to better pronunciation by, by the time uh, this goes live. Um, but this is abnormal lymphatic drainage in the small intestine, and that can result in protein and fat malabsorption. And then our final rare condition is short bowel syndrome. And that's when the body can't absorb enough nutrients from the food that uh, you're eating because a significant portion of the small intestine is either missing or isn't functioning. Um, so that can lead to malabsorption and malnutrition. So that's short bowel syndrome. So I hope you enjoyed this pit stop around rare and lesser lesser known or lesser spoken about bowel conditions then it's clear that a lot can go wrong with bowels and because a lot of the time the symptoms between these conditions as you will have heard are all quite similar so we've talked about constipation diarrhea feeling sick bloating distension uh, they're all common themes in all of these different conditions and it can make it difficult to find out what is what is wrong. It can make it difficult to diagnose something. And sometimes uh, tests are done as a process of elimination to rule out different conditions. And sometimes there, there's not a definitive test to where you can do one test and say, yes, this is this is what what this is for sure. So that does make things trickier. And the fact that the conditions are rare. Uh, the fact that they're not not spoken about very much and they're difficult to diagnose. Sometimes uh, there's disagreement between people on exactly how to define a condition. So one clinician or researcher might have one idea of how uh, how to define a, a condition, and a, another may have a very different idea of, of what uh, what symptoms or what other attributes should be included in in a definition. Uh, of a condition so that can all make it difficult to define to diagnose uh, to treat and to research all of these conditions so there is still lots of research needed for so much uh, of all of all of this stuff and of course at bowel research uk we want to end bowel cancer and bowel disease you know our mission is for people to to no longer be suffering and and dying from various conditions so there's lots more research to be done and lots more for us to, to talk about on this podcast, and we'll absolutely be doing this. And lots more research to be funded as well. So if you've been affected by any of these conditions, if you're interested in any of them, if you know somebody who has them, please do donate to Bowel Research UK. You can go to bowelresearchuk.org to make a donation and help us to fund more research into bowel cancer and bowel disease. And that's all different types of bowel conditions. So the, the rare ones that we've spoken about today and the more common ones as, as well. We, we don't just want to find cures and treatments. We want to make those treatments easier for, for people to, to cope with, we want to improve people's quality of life. And we really just we want to make the, the world a better place for everybody who is uh, living with bowel disease bowel conditions, bowel cancer. So please do donate if you've found this episode interesting, if anything's resonated with you. 
do have a look at the patient stories on our website and have a look at the research that we're funding. And you can also get involved with research yourself by joining the PART network. PART stands for People and Research Together. You can go to our website and fill in the form to join the PART network. And I will personally be sending you an email every month. I'll send it to, to the whole PART network and that will contain all of the latest opportunities for getting involved in research. So please donate, please join the PART network please keep listening and I'll be back with a new episode in a couple of weeks. And also, if you would like to share your own patient stories, please do email me, sam at bowelresearchuk.org. You can get your story on the website, whether that's a story about a rare bowel condition or a more common bowel condition. Everybody's story is different. Whether the condition is rare or not, your story is unique to you. And it really helps people to hear about other patient stories. And it helps all of us if we just keep talking about bowel conditions, because it's not something that everybody is comfortable with. And there is still stigma there around lots of different symptoms and conditions. So we want to break that stigma as well. I know that was a lot of uh, calls, calls to action. Please pick one and uh, or more, more than one, if you like and engage with us and I thank you very much for listening and I look forward to bringing you another episode very soon thank you for listening to can I button this podcast was brought to you by bowel research uk find out more about the charity our work and how you can get involved visit bowelresearchuk.org where you can join our people and research together network or part read about our research campaigns and fundraising, or make a donation to support the vital work we do. Let's end bowel cancer and bowel disease.